0: instead of being someone trying to argue for the flourishes and nuances and brilliance of Black performance, why don't I just evangelize in the name of what's already happened? And um, that was a much more joyful book to write. I'm Michael Tamblin,
1: CEO of Rakuten Kobo. This is Kobo in Conversation. My guest today is the writer Hanif abdur author of the book, A Little Devil in America, Notes in Praise of Black Performance. This is his third book of prose following his debut, They Can't Kill Us Until They Kill Us, which we've talked about in this show in a Staff Picks episode, and Go Ahead in the Rain, Notes to a Tribe Called Quest. He's also published several volumes of poetry and written about just about everything you expect a person with smart things to say about culture might write, And everywhere they might write it. And don't just take my word for it, last year he was awarded a MacArthur Fellowship, a prize known in some circles as the Genius Grant. Hanif Abdurraqib, welcome to Kobo.
0: Thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here. You had a
1: big year in 2021. Your book, A Little Devil in America, came out in April. You received the MacArthur Fellowship in September. The same book is nominated for a National Book Award in October and then wins the Gordon Byrne Prize. How's that all feeling for you right now at the beginning of
0: 2022? Yeah, I mean, oddly, I feel like I know people don't often believe this, but I actually don't think about it much. I, um, it's hard for me, I think, to kind of get caught up in the even the pleasures of, of decoration and. Um, because I, I that really takes me out of the the fact I mean I really just am someone who is devoted to the work um mm-hmm. and like requires a lot of space uh mental and emotional space to to get to and remain immersed in um you know the, the pleasures of the work and so I'm, while I'm grateful for all those things you know I, I think they're kind of um they feel fleeting in the face of the hope at least that the work will endure. Um, and that's kind of, you know, where I'm always at and where my head is always at is kind of, um, you know, if I get too wrapped up in this, then I'm, I'm maybe floating a bit outside of, uh, where I want to be, which is kind of locked in on, on, on what's next. You know, I, um, some of this, I think is from the sport. I grew up playing sports at a, at a decently high level and, um, I think it's one of those things that's just built into my engagement where it's like, um, you know, to achieve anything means there's there's kind of something else left to chase after. And and for me, like those achievements don't even come in the form of these decorations, but they come in the form of like this real generous opportunity I have to write for a living, which is, uh, you know, not everyone gets that. And, and so, um, you know, I, I don't want to sit in awe of it for too long um, and I, I want to allow myself some time to, to to feel good but I also want to remind myself to get back to the work and so it's a combination of uh, of feeling
1: fortunate to be able to do the job combined with that one play at a time, one drill at a time one game at a time that that, uh, that comes from being a soccer player
0: yeah, yeah, so I mean and, and I think too, you know, like I I, I very much have to focus on what's right in front of me. And um I I move really quickly, I think. You know, I get very excited. And I wanna keep moving on um ideas and all of that. Um A Little Devil in America is interesting because it was the first book you, you know, I mean undoubtedly you talk to a lot of people and I talk to a lot of writers who have the same thing where like, yes, the book is out in the world, but by the time the book comes out, you've like lived with that book for a long time. and, And you might have something new that you're ready. This happened to me with poems all the time where it was like the book of poems came out and I'd have to read out of the book of poems and I would love those poems still, but I'd be like, well, damn, I got, you know, in the meantime, I wrote all these new poems, you know, a little devil in America is the first book where it was like, by the time it came out, I was still so in love with it and not yet done with it. And what felt most celebratory for me was to continue to immerse myself in the world of that book, to keep going down the rabbit holes that book afforded me and all these things. And, and so um, this is, I will admit, the first time that I've had a book that I have not yet wanted. Well, now I have moved on to something new, but uh, for a long time I didn't want to move on from it. And so the awards and stuff were were nice and, and they felt um, great as far as achievements go. But I was still so in the world of that book; it's, it felt like I was still writing it. Well, let's let's take advantage of that because this is—it's uh, um, absolutely a book
1: that one could immerse themselves in. And um, a little devil in America is about Aretha Franklin and Michael Jackson and Whitney Houston and Soul Train, but it's also about funerals and about how music can be a vehicle for salvation and yeah. how we act with our elders and various kinds of complex and complicated magic. And the line through it all is Black people and Black performance. And can you tell me a bit about how that came to be the organizing principle for this book?
0: Well, I mean, a big thing, the question of it for me was... um, Well, okay. So it bears mentioning that this was not always the track the book was on. So I feel like I have to say that first. Okay. Um, Initially, the book was... You know, I had written this thing about um, this thing that still exists online. There's a link to it that I I wish I could share, but no one will see it. But I wrote this thing about Justin Timberlake and Al Green and Elvis and Memphis. And it was talking about the it was when Justin Timberlake was doing that like man of the wood. And so (laughs) it was talking about the malleabilities of appropriation and how appropriation, uh, is often more complex than the sometimes binary conversations around it. Um, how Justin Timberlake has gone through many modes of appropriation and worn them all, uh, I don't know, well, but uniquely, in a way that's unique, definitely unique to him and his career. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the book was going to follow this through line about appropriation, um, beginning with minstrelsy and working its way up through hip hop and, um, you know, popular culture contemporary popular culture. It's wild because I just saw um, – I got, like, a, a re- one of those, like, anniversary posts that come up on our social media and whatnot. And so I just saw the original, like um, – what's those, what's those announcements? Is it Publishers Weekly or Publishers – the Publishers Lunch yeah, announcements yeah. type things? I saw the original announcement from back in 2017 that it outlined what the book was sold as, and I was like, damn, that's a – that's like, that's, it had a different name and everything, didn't it? it was, yeah, it had a different yeah. name. Yeah, it had a different name. had different everything. So I, I got that, and I was like, this doesn't even sound like anything. <laughs> you know, But halfway through working on it, I found myself exhausted by the fact that even though I didn't want to, the book almost, on, on the track that I had determined for it, that track required me to center whiteness to a degree that like I just wasn't excited about. Mm-hmm. And I didn't realize that that would happen until I started writing the book. And it was like, well, this is kind of happening organically because... The stories I'm telling need this, um, and and then you know this thing happened where I was writing about Don Cornelius, and I had asked if I, I had a connection I knew somebody who knew somebody, and they got me a hard drive of every Soul Train episode from like the early '70s to the late '80s. Oh wow! Like every single one, and so. I stayed up, I just watched them all. You know, this is when I was at a, at a breaking point for the book where I was like, I don't think this book is gonna be what I want it to be, mm-hmm. but I still want this book to be, you know? Um, it wasn't like, it was. Ne- there was never a point of abandonment. It was always just like, this isn't what I dreamed it to be. And I think it can be better. And I was in the midst of that and I was watching these Soul Train episodes every single night. Like I watched like four, four or five every night for months, for months, really months. And I came to this conclusion where I was like, well, what if this doesn't have to to like I could tell what if I told these stories without that kind of centering, or what if I gave in to the reality that in some cases, if what I'm hinting at or what I'm trying to actually get at is the permanence and exuberance of black performance and the pleasures of black performance? Why don't I give in to the reality that in some ways, the book has already been written? you know, if I look at these soul train lines. And I look at what's happening in the kind of joyful container of Soul Train that was built, that's the essay. The essay's already written itself. And so then how do I switch how do I switch the part of my brain that insists I need to make an argument to convince the public and instead switch on a part of my brain that says, Well, no, my job is to be an evangelist for what has already occurred, you know? Um, because I don't want to argue about the glory of Soul Train. What is there to argue as far as I'm concerned, there's nothing to argue, right? <laughs> And so that was a real revelatory moment for me to say that um, instead of instead of being someone trying to argue for the flourishes and nuances and brilliance of black performance, why don't I just evangelize in the name of what's already happened? And um, that was a much more joyful book to write. That was a book that was much more exciting.
1: And you opened this book
0: with the first essay is
1: about Soul Train and it's about yeah. Don Cornelius. And so why does that make the the perfect setup? You know, what's the, um, what is it about that experience, whether it was the watching of them, you know, in this yeah. massive binge watch or watching them when you were younger, that sets up this idea of that celebration of performance so well?
0: Yeah, well, I opened it with that in part because that was the essay that turned the book around for me. Mm-hmm. But I also opened it that way because it was this perfect moment because in the essay itself there's a revelation, a brief one I think, but one that I, I hope is potent enough where it's you know the thing where I go into um the soul train line and the dance marathon as an act of endurance in loving someone beyond the limits where you believe you are capable of loving them. And um that I think was a perfect starting point to say what you're reading is maybe not what you, it's not about what you think it's about. And I'm going to nudge you gently in this other direction for a little while, just so that you can expect that this book is going to be a book of those nudges, repeated, repeated nudges. Um, And so, you know, one of my mentors always told me that like, you can, you can train people how you want them to read your work based on like sequencing does that for you. Like sequencing sets up expectations on an album too, or anything, right? Any kind, I mean, albums, I, and I learned this from albums where, you know, the way an album is sequenced teaches me how the artist wants me to hear it. And I, I think books should do the same thing. And I had an opportunity there to, um, offer these small, gentle voltas within that larger piece that inform people that set up a, a set up an expectation that, um, this book itself is going to be in the business of turning some things on its ear. As
1: much as you talk about performance in this book, you talk about audience, the the other side of the coin, the other, the other half of that relationship and especially the audiences need to categorize or distill an artist down, even though an artist can contain multitudes and you go all the way back to vaudeville with, Black Herman and Burt Williams literally passing out or yeah. dying on stage. And, you know, a, a metaphor that, yeah. as you say, is like extended through decades. I'd love you to talk a bit about that that tension that you feel between that relationship and that idea of audiences uplifting versus audiences demanding of a performer. Yeah.
0: So, okay. One thing I have to say that's wild to me is that and I don't know, you know, I, I can't speak confidently because I did like limited research on this, but enough to say that that, that so black Herman and, and folks who black performers passing out and or dying on stage and the audience thinking it was a part of the act that was like not entirely uncommon. Like that happened often enough. Right. Um, and it was just, you know, so that when I, I found that out so early in my research process, and it just messed with me like it was messing with me for a long time. Um, and I didn't really quite know how to unravel the way it was messing with me. And I, I found myself like eternally kind of chipping away at these questions of audience expectations um, and even indicting myself a bit, right? And, and, and asking myself questions of the expectations that I have of artists to fulfill to fulfill what my expectations are that have almost nothing to do with them and everything to do with me. And um, it, it was a real interesting ride to be on because um, I felt like through that self-indictment, like yes, there were expectations that were absolutely unquestionably racialized Right, mm-hmm. but when we're talking about Josephine Baker. There, there were those questions were also gendered, and those questions were also there was. It was important for me to, I think, to seep into what my complicity has been in the past um, as audience member, as viewer of someone doing something spectacular, as someone who like continually wants and wants and wants, um, and, and that was um, uniquely challenging, worthwhile, truly, but uniquely challenging for me too. Um, And I don't know if I came up with any good answers on the other side of it, except to say that, you know, I think um, to be a performer is to give yourself over to expectations that might be entirely detached from your personhood. And that kind of surrender of control um, is jarring and uh, has some real, you know, tangible outcomes that aren't always in the favor of those who are doing the work and what i what I found especially
1: interesting about the way you frame this is that there is there's that exchange between performers and audience that is just kind of natural to um to the arrangement. It's how we treat all artists. You are the you are the experience that you deliver to me. Right. but then there's that additional dimension that's created by the distance of difference, you know, a black performer in front of a white audience um, or black and white people together in an audience experiencing a performance in a different way. And, and there were probably three, four, five different versions of that through the course of this book that you, that you explore and touch on in different ways.
0: Yeah, I mean I it, it was important for me to, to because this is a book about black performance. Um while it was important for me to I think decentralize the broader specter of whiteness, it was it was also though important for me to not decentralize the impacts of uh performing to white audiences or folding towards the desires of white collaborators or these kind of things. And I thought the, the trickiest balance was was um doing that work while still lending a real fullness and humanity to the people I was writing about. I mean, a perfect example this is Mary Clayton, I think, um, who I really was desperate to write about in a way that pushed her to be known beyond, you know, the moment Gimme Shelter. Mm-hmm. Um, that was a real vital thing for me. And to, to give a fullness to her still ongoing life, I mean, she released the album last year, that was great. Um, and you know that that's one of those things where um, it was a task in some ways to say how do I present a person to the public um, with dignity and affection, uh, particularly when they maybe have not always been treated with that kind of generosity.
1: And this is something that you've been turning over in your writing for a while now. Oh, I'm thinking back to. 2016, in the article you wrote for MTV called Nina Simone was very Black. And, oh, yeah. it, you know, where you said America so frequently is excited about the stories of Black people, but not the Black people themselves. And, you know, again, it's that, you know, what do people in an audience take from a performer? What's the value that they impose on them? And, and how does the performer end up on the other side of that? Um, and so it's... Do you find that your your thinking around this has sort of evolved or changed over the years, or are you
0: you know are you chipping away at the same stone? Well um I'm chipping away at a similar stone. I mean of course my I thinking has evolved, but my obsessions rarely do. Mm-hmm. I think my, my thinking around my obsessions evolve frequently. But at the core, um I'm not entirely sure. That my um, my obsessions uh, themselves don't really evolve, or don't you know they they don't they kind of don't change, or or at least they um, they become more malleable as I get older. But I think at the core, I'm still interested in in the broadest possible sense. My my container of affections remains intact. Uh, But um, you describe a lot of situations that are about being, you know,
1: quote unquote, the only one in a room full of white people, whether it's at punk shows or at a screening of three billboards outside of Ebbing, Missouri, is is this something that's heightened your awareness of what audiences are doing when they're watching performance, you know, often being, you know, that one different from all the others in that kind of
0: in that setting? I think it may be used to. I mean, now I don't really think about it anymore. Uh-huh. I think there was a point in my life where I thought about, um, and to be fair, I'm not often in those situations anymore either. I think, particularly in the past handful of years, it's it's so rare that I'm in situations like that. But I'm also just like kind of a, i have I've I've stopped spending as much time trying to unravel that that kind of phenomenon of, like, how do I um figure out um my presence or the like white audience presence in the relationship to what we're what we're consuming at once at the same time Mm -hmm. part of that was you know that that three billboards thing i pulled that part i pulled that part of that essay from a piece that was like from when the movie came out so that that part of that essay that is i pulled that from you know years ago and that experience like was wild that experience kind of me up to a degree where I was like, I don't even know if I can get inside the psyche of this or, um, if it'll do me any good to pursue getting inside of the mind of what's happening here. And so I think that I've kind of departed from that particular, um, that particular investment. It just didn't feel like, uh, it was working for me. You have personal experience of grief and
1: mourning, but you've also made kind of a close inspection of it over time, and it it features in your, your first collection of poetry, The Crown Ain't Worth Much, and it shows up here as well. The one thing that really struck me was you explore the two sides of mourning someone or something that we've lost, you know, mourning with loss and sadness and longing to return versus mourning with celebration and gratitude and can you talk to me a a little about both the tension between those two and why it keeps coming back in your writing
0: yeah well I think it it definitely keeps coming back in part because I feel required to understand grief as something um, beyond just kind of immovable in terms of its weight Mm -hmm. because I've lost so much, you know, and I've lost so many people I love. I've lost so many things I love. I've lost, I mean, like many people right now, you know, I've, I've lost time, like actual time. Um, and there's, there's, um, there's, I think something that I'm really interested in, in terms of, uh, how do I make this experience of loss tenable? How do I make it tenable, not just for me, but for other people who might endure it? Um, And how do I frame loss and grief as something generous and not only um, something that that can render us, uh, you know, that can devastate us? And so I'm I'm understanding grief as the... um, the primary color or the center the center of a great many things but I understand that grief is is something that has a lot of working parts it's it's, you know the engine of, or the machinery of grief has a lot of moving parts and to honor all those moving parts I think brings me at least a little closer to um, a joyful endurance because I think without that it would be really hard, um, for me to move through the world if I didn't imagine, if I'm almost required to imagine and steep myself in a reality where grief is not only, um, you know, a a somewhat a movable force. I'm interested in what books meant to you when you were young. Yeah. You know, what's wild is I grew up reading fiction, um, And I say that's wild because I don't read a lot of fiction now, not because I dislike it. I I just fell out of practice with, you know, I think about reading as a practice and I fell out of a fiction reading practice. Although last year I picked it up and I read some more. I read about like five fiction books. Um, But growing up, I read only fiction. Um, And it was fascinating for me because, you know, When so so this thing happened when I was growing up, where you know I grew up in a house we didn't have a lot of money, but my parents did value reading, and so you know they kept some books around and and let us read, let me and my my siblings and I kind of read freely. But then when I was like eleven, a library was built down the street, like walking distance, and that was really the thing game changer. That was like, yeah, yeah, that like unlocked everything for me because um, it allowed me to just kind of sit and, you know, particularly on summer vacations when it was too hot for anything else. um, I would kind of just find myself um, sitting in the library, in the air conditioning and reading and no one made me leave and no one kicked me out and people, librarians who saw me in there a lot would, um, you know, would reckon would see the stuff i was reading and recommend books to me Mm -hmm. and um that was like immensely formative for me because um i had never had people say even notice me let alone say oh it seems like you like this here's something else you might like you know um and that that was really great and and so that was big i was big into fantasy you know what i actually just got I feel like a lot of people sleep on Lloyd Alexander. I don't really remember Lloyd Alexander much, but, um, but, and I think it's maybe, I think his work is maybe lost to, canonically at least, is lost to eras that also held stuff like, um, you know, the C.S. Lewis stuff and Narnia and all that. But Lloyd Alexander, the Perdane Chronicle specifically, I – read that and still read that every year I just got a set I just got a first edition signed set oh wow Um because I really just wanted to have those books mean the world to me you know when I was 11 years old I first read them and I read them every single year every single year every single year um, you know I carried those books with me forever. Like I, I would go to, I mean, folks know some of my background of some of my story when I was like dealing with housing insecurity and all that. I, and I didn't have a place to stay. I would go to the libraries because you know, they would let you in and I would just read those books. And I love those books so much. And, um, I think that those books, you know, not to get too like high level on the way to Alexander, but I think those books actually taught me a lot about, I, I just love that he wrote, uh, a boy character or a male character, who was so deeply flawed by like entrapped in his own ideas of masculinity that it just him up, mm-hmm. you know, and he had to learn these things the hard, like through multiple hard lessons. I love that. I love the slow evolution of Taryn. and um, I, I appreciate that differently now as an adult. But when I was a kid, I I don't know. The, you know what? It, I actually cannot believe and this isn't like me making a pitch for, to, to to, but I cannot believe that those have not been made in the films. I know we got that like terrible black cauldron animated thing a while, like a yeah. long time ago, but I actually cannot believe it's stunning to me that those books have not been made in the films. Right
1: and now. those were, uh, those ones grabbed me and they, I think were my, my gateway fantasy. Like they, they were the ones that just grabbed me and pulled me in. And, and in a way that some of the other, you know, the, the The world building was complex, but it wasn't like there was this massive hurdle of like, invented languages and stuff that you had to crawl oh, over yeah. in order to to get to it. So you didn't bounce off of it like you did with say, Tolkien or something like that. But you're right. it they just kind of vanished from the um from the popular culture and have never gotten their thirty two episode Netflix deal that,
0: <laughs> that it's, they It is get. so strange to me. I, I don't know. A part of me for a long time was like how did this happen? There had to be something that made it so that this this these books vanished like truly vanished from There's an
1: estate problem or or something. there's got to be. Yeah.
0: I mean, it has to be because it really like even if we're even if they don't ever get put on screen in any way, they are they're actually like kind of they've kind of vanished from the cultural lexicon, or the cultural canon. Mm-hmm. Like, when I bring them up to people, sometimes people will be like, oh, yeah, I kind of remember those. But a lot of times people are like, nah, I don't have any idea. And I think a lot of people know The Black Cauldron maybe because there was that, like, cartoon movie. Yep. Um, even though that movie kind of didn't, you know, didn't hit the way I think people expected it to. But those books, man, like, that story arc and that narrative arc, it, it's just spectacular. I, I I don't know. I have I, I read them again last year. I'm gonna read them again this year. I, I'm, I'm a little nervous about cracking the first edition ones because they're like obviously like oldish. But no, uh, you you need a backup. Set. Yeah, yeah. So I gotta get just like the the paperbacks. I gotta get the yeah. original or the, those like paperbacks. But those are those are the books that stand out for me. I mean, there there are great many, but those are the ones I'm thinking about today. So as a
1: as a complete sidebar, while I was going through your list of works on on Cobo, it was revealed to me that you have just written a children's book sing aretha yeah. sing
0: yeah and, yeah
1: and so tell me how that came together
0: i gotta say like so much of that the the credit for that um goes i think to ashley mcbride who um who you know illustrated it because uh the work itself was really you know i i don't I just I wrote that in like a couple hours like 1200 words you know I got asked to write a book a children's book and wreath had passed away a while before that Um, and I thought about I just grew up in a household where music was always playing and people were excited about music and invested in music and the ways that stories were passed down about music and musicians when I was growing up um, were never though they were done well and generously and all that through my elders there was never like a tactile thing that i could touch and hold and look at and so i thought a children's book you know about aretha seemed appropriate and um really i the illustrations were tied together and, and are that make the book the book and that are the engine for the book um and i just played a small role in lending some language to those beautiful illustrations and so uh, I don't know if the children's book world is for me. I, I really enjoyed doing this, but I, I don't know that that might be. Um, I think that might be out of my out of my realm from now on. Were you someone who was always writing
1: one way or another, or was there a switch that flipped and you decided that you're you're doing this now?
0: Uh, no, I didn't start writing until I was. Um, Maybe. I mean, I, I started I I started writing um, sort of seriously uh, in my early 20s, late teens, early 20s. That was mostly for zines. I grew up in a punk scene. And the thing about zines is, you know, you have to report on uh, what's happening on the scene mm-hmm. or you have to report on what's happening where you are so that other people can get a feel for where you are and what's going on where they are and these kind of things. And um, that was kind of uh, a vital experience for me because it shaped my voice as a critic and as a deliverer of good news. Um, You know, someone who felt like I could be exuberant about the things I was seeing and excited about. Um, And so, yeah, you know, like, that is kind of how the writing began. But I I never... um, I didn't start writing seriously until, um, well, who's to say what serious is? I didn't really start writing with any kind of intention to write as a life until I kind of found poetry. Um, And that was around 2012. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's funny. I I never, um, I really never wanted to do anything except publish one book. I wanted to publish that book of poems and that was it. Uh, By that, I mean The Crown Ain't Worth Much. Um, That was the plan, that was it. Uh, And that was, you know, at the time I was working a job and I was excited about that job, or not excited about that job, but you know, um, the thing was I'd had a, you know, I I got in trouble when I was younger and I had like a record and and getting a job, like getting a quote unquote big air quotes here, traditional (laughs) nine to five type job, uh was an achievement at the time because you know it was hard to get hired with a criminal record and so i my whole thing was like well I, I gotta you know writing is something I can do on the side and I'll publish this one book and uh feel really good about it um and and obviously things changed but um uh, I was really excited to um kind of immerse myself in the world of writing.
1: It sounded like Poetry for you was was also this mix of, of solitary pursuit on one hand, and performance on the other. You did poetry slams in Columbus.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's how it came up, and, and still do I think. No, no, I'm not the game on that. <laughs> uh, I've been for years, but but yeah, I mean, but I but I though I owe a great deal to the poetry slam world and the scene, and I still, I mean, I was still, you know, I don't really, uh, well, none of us really get out anymore, all like that, but um, I you know whenever i would tour i would still put a poetry slam venue or two on my tour schedule because those are the kind of places where the work the reception for the work is what i crave right to hear people uh people responding to your work in real time you know poetry slam uh taught me a lot about um Mm -hmm. real-time feedback and sound and how sound and in Pleasureful sounds can inform the writing and editing process. Um, And this kind of, you know, I don't really care about competition, the competition part of the poetry slam, but I I got so much out of um, putting my work in real time against the work of writers I admired. And um, not even in a competitive way, but in a way to say, okay, how am I, how am I sounding? How am I looking? What can I learn? It's always 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 been a question of what can I learn? And Poetry um, Slam offered me a kind of really massive opportunity for that.
1: And Columbus seems to be one of those places where that that culture is really strong. like there's a lot of that going on there.
0: Yeah, yeah, I mean Columbus, you know of course now the pandemic has slowed things, but mm-hmm. when I was coming up in the poetry community here, there's no better place to be but Columbus, if you ask me, and I'm sure you know some East Coast folks might disagree, but there was a point in Columbus where, you could hit a different poetry night every single night of the week if you wanted to monday through friday sometimes on the weekends and all of them were different you know and all of them the, all of them had great writers but all of them were different and so um that was really fulfilling because again it was always always a question of what can i learn and how can i add new things to my bag and so um you know that's uh that that was like a big big thing for me was just kind of um allowing myself patience and allowing myself to be sort of a sponge um right and so that's that was like the big thing is you know how do i learn how do i learn patience and how do i uh know that i am incapable of conquering all at once and um poetry the it, coming up in the poetry slam community in columbus really taught me that so you have these two tracks
1: of of writing that are evolving and growing in parallel. You have poetry on one side. You have this growing body of work as, yeah. as you say initially, like a music zine writer, but that growing into a broader cultural commentary with music at the center. Did you just let these two things grow in parallel or were they were you kind of switching between one and the other?
0: No, I let them grow together. You know, I, I didn't think that I, I thought the way I wrote could translate to, I think I just needed the language. You know, I needed the, I needed to know how to wrap language around my interests in a way that was compelling and that had some beauty. Um, and in a way that got people and held people, that was what I didn't have. I had, uh, I had all my excitements and I had all these kind of um i had the exuberant the conversational exuberance um but i i, I just didn't have the ability um, to outline some beautiful language to ascribe these things to ascribe to these things and so once I figured out once i began reading poetry specifically um it really opened up some things for me. And so, yeah, I, I, I always thought, well, I'm excited about music and I'm excited about popular culture and I'm excited about this kind of, um, you know, ever evolving relationship with nostalgia that not only I have, but a lot of people have. And I, I think I just need words for it. Um, and I think to this day, I'm still kind of in the in the pursuit of the words. With music and nostalgia, You've written a whole book inspired by
1: your longstanding admiration for the hip hop group A Tribe Called Quest? Yeah. And you've written a long, passionate essay about the emo band My Chemical Romance. You're a fan of Carly Ray Jepsen. Do you do you have a sense yourself of what it is in music that grabs you or hooks you?
0: Or is it always a surprise to find yourself falling in love with something. Well, I still chase that surprise, certainly. You know, I still pursue um, the feeling of surprise. And I think that's one thing that brings me back to music is that I'm always open to and excited about, you know, I, I haven't heard everything. I haven't heard every way that everything can be done. And therefore I know that I am still capable of being surprised and I'm still open to the reality of surprise which means that I have to pursue listening with a real um joyful aggressiveness in a way um and that is kind of one thing that brings me back is is the reality of of what might be waiting for me on the other end of that pursuit now another thing is that um i think that i am i return to songs i love because i'm fascinated by um the way that songs can kind of stitch their way along the emotional landscape, even though that landscape has changed for me with age or time or experience. Right. Um, I I, I'm fascinated eternally by the way that, uh, songs live in the heart and mind, even when we've kind of, um, evolved past their origin point. And so, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm also, you know, someone who's always, always, always invested in returning.
1: You also, you know, you root those things in time um, and in memory. You also do an amazing job of, of rooting them in place. You've lived other places, you've done residences and fellowships, but you have come back to Columbus. And, and when we're young, our home is just our home. It's the, it's the center of the universe, but then we get older and if we're lucky we go some places and we see some things and then coming home is a conscious choice right. so i'm i'm interested in what brought
0: you back and what it's been like to root yourself there oh yeah I mean know well, i love columbus i i you know being here and being um in a place that i know and understand the nuances of and understand the corners of is vital for my creative practice but more than that um, being in a place where I learned how to be a creative person is vital for my creative practice. Being in a place where um, where I am surrounded by people who knew me and loved me well before I wrote anything, not just anything quote-unquote worthwhile, mm-hmm. but anything, means that um, there's a type of fullness that people see me with that, that I think allows for a real care and a real openness with how I'm treated here. And so, you know, um, coming home with, was, 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 uh, was a, was an easy thing for me. Um, and to make a home here has meant a lot. And, uh, particularly I think during the past two years, I've been, I've been back in Columbus since 2017, early 2017, but particularly past two years, you know, it's been, um, it's, it's been a real experience, a real joyful experience to get to be home. And, and to get to kind of re, reground myself, um, in the realities of of being um, held in, in in familiar territory. And you have a mural now. Is that is that how you say yeah.
1: it? You you have a mural. You are a mural. <laughs> I
0: suppose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was really kind and, and generous. And um, you know that that all that's that's a, that's a lot for me. But I really you know appreciate. I just think if you can, um, it's just a, a real pleasure to be in a place where um, people are excited to celebrate you while you're still among them, um, and that is the kind of place Columbus has always been, and not just for me. You know, I think uh, there there are, uh, you know, I'm like one, um, one in a great lineage of artists who have carried forward the missions of a lot of artists who came before me. And so, um, you know, it, it's just an honor to kind of be in a place that um, taught me how to do this work and to get to do the work here. When you were younger, you talked
1: about struggling in the world in in a lot of the different ways that we, that we mean struggle. Would you, would you say you're more comfortable in the world now or is the, is the struggle still there?
0: I think it's just a different struggle. I mean, it you know with it's this the struggles for me have always been a constant evolution um i think i'm more mature now and so the ways that those struggles manifest themselves or the ways they kind of rattle around in my head and in my daily living um maybe don't lead to the same decision making process that they did when i was younger but yeah i mean I, I think you know there's there's an evolution of of these struggles that feel to me um That, like, uh, you know, I am never going to be without. And so uh, what I think I have to do instead and what I've had to do instead um, was build a life that acts as uh, something that can endure. And much like I was talking about with grief, uh, a life that is comfortable with seeing um, the struggles or the the emotional byproducts of these struggles as uh something that is not just daunting or um, rage or sadness inducing there's there's another side to this too and um i am hopefully learning how to be a better person and in turn learning how to be a better artist through a lot of these processes as an observer of people and culture
1: would you say that you are the kind of person who observes from a distance or, or do you try to close that distance as much as you can and get as present and as close as possible?
0: Well, I mean, I think in the real life, in real life, I definitely observe from a distance in part because, um, you know, I'm an anxious person and I, I do think that um, those anxieties require me to keep the world at a distance um, in order for it to be comfortable for me. Um, in order for me to really assess it well, I need to be at a distance, but I think the writing is where I get to, to close that gap a bit. Um, you know, writing is kind of where I get to shrink the distance between me and the world that, that I might be too afraid to get too close to or too anxious to get too close to. Um, you know, the world that I have no problem brushing up against, but also, uh, you know, don't want to get too close to. And so I, I think writing really affords um, an opportunity for me to continually close these gaps that I build through observation and and um, to ask some people to come along with me, you know, to kind of reinforce the reality that um, none of us are in the broader this whatever we define as this uh, none of us are in it alone well, and that was something that really jumped out to me in
1: um in the reading of your most recent book and also in your poetry as well that you talk to the reader a lot you you um you address the reader directly you ask them to come along with you yeah and and in your poems as well there's this feeling of you know, it's love letters to friends. It's it's your you really do feel that collapsing of the of the distance between you as a writer and uh, um and us as the people holding
0: the book. Yeah, that's important to me because I there are times where I think the direct address um, acts as a breaking of the fourth wall and also removes the kind of hierarchy between reader and speaker, or reader and writer, if we were to call it that, Um, and offers an ability to kind of say, we're here kind of alongside each other, and therefore, if we treat it like this, if if we are to understand that we're here alongside each other, then you no longer are required to look at me as an expert. You're maybe, hopefully, required to think of me, or not even required to, but offered a path wherein you can think of me as someone as curious as you were when you picked up this book. Because that is kind of who I am and who I remain. You know, I'm a, um, I hope to be a vessel for multiple curiosities at once, and I think to break down that hierarchy lends itself to real honesty about what my intentions are when it comes to what I want to, to read about and speak about in discussion. And it also
1: seems to engage back to what we were talking about earlier, that idea of uplift and, and celebration. The, uh, in that direct address, you're inviting people to come along with you. You, um, uh, and you engage with them with affection. And (laughs) and it's, uh, um, so you get to feel both, Um, a participant in the work and a a
0: celebrant of the work at the same time. Yeah. 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 I mean, that's, and that's, I think, you know, I came up on music scenes that were richly communal in nature where, you know, bands, punk bands, underground scene bands, they would play these small shows and the shows are sold out. If kids couldn't get in or whatever, they would find somebody's basement after the show and play a a second set in the basement, you know? Mm -hmm. And that's something that um, I carry with me because I mostly want people to have access to what I'm excited about. And I want people to be able to, I want it to be touchable to everyone. And so I'm always writing towards that post-show basement vibe. I'm always writing towards that kind of thing where we can be present with each other and um, feel like we're in a space where questions can be asked and not necessarily answered. You were awarded a MacArthur
1: fellowship, which sort of exists for the sole purpose of giving people who are very, very good at something, the chance to do more of it without having to worry for a little while. Uh, and some people roll into it with a project that they've always wanted to do. Some people start something completely new. What do you think you want to do with that time?
0: Um, I'll get more sleep. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I, I don't, yeah. I mean, I think things are going to just keep rolling the way they do. Like whether or not I got the MacArthur, I still have a book that I'm working on that I, that is due this year that I got to put my head down and work on. Um, I still have Object of Sound, the music podcast I do that is rolling into its third, excitedly like, rolling into its third season. Um, so so many of my projects are just projects that I was doing before. Now, I think this is maybe a better, because I, I got that a lot. I got that question a lot. And I always tell people it's maybe a better question for like three years down the road. Mm-hmm. It's better to ask three years from now, like what you know, what germinated during that time, like what started when you had that. Yeah, because it's not like I, I, and I know some people who have approached the MacArthur this way, I suppose, where it's like they get the MacArthur and they're like, I'm going to do this, this, and this. But for me, it's like, well, I these things I'm excited about were already, I was already chasing after them before last summer or last fall or whenever, Mm -hmm. and so that's on my mind now, but. There undoubtedly before the end of the year is going to be something I dream up. I don't know. Maybe I'll try to get someone to let me make films out of the Lloyd Alexander books. <laughs> and you've thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. This is a real pleasure. And, you know, I, I hope y'all stay warm out there. I, I think that um, it's tough, you know, the second kind of, Second go round of the pandemic winter kind of thing is is interesting because for me at least in the Midwest or at least this part of the Midwest you get into these like January February parts of it and it's just like relentless and so I hope folks are uh, both y'all out there in Canada and folks listening are are are, you know treating themselves generously. I've been speaking with Hanif Abdurraqib. His latest book is *A
1: Little Devil in America: Notes in Praise of Black Performance* you can find it and all the books we talked about at Kobo and Conversation's home on the web at kobo.com conversation. Check the show notes for a link. Make sure to catch every conversation by subscribing wherever you listen and leave a rating too. You have an infinite number of stars you can give away in your lifetime, so send some our way. Kobo and Conversation is produced by Nathan Maharaj and hosted by me, Michael
0: Taylor. Thank you for listening.